From the very moment that the word of the Lord spoke creation into existence, Christ's victory was anticipated. His mission was to redeem what was lost in Adam. And he would do this by redeeming his people by his atoning grace, transforming their minds by the indwelling of his spirit, and sending them into the world to declare his lordship's sovereignty dominion by the preaching of the gospel. This sermon explores the dominion commission of the incarnate Son of God. Our old covenant reading coming from Genesis in chapter 1. Genesis in chapter 1, beginning in verse 26 through the end of the chapter, verse 31. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in in the image, in the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them, and God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree, yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat, and to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth wherein there is life. I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. The evangelist Matthew writing, after the resurrection of the sovereign king of the universe, Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16 to the end of the chapter, where Christ reiterates his dominion mandate from Genesis chapter 1. By inspiration of God, the apostle says this, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day, even the gospel of the kingdom of our sovereign king, our Lord Jesus Christ. And God said, let us make man in our image. Now, on the heels of the anticipation of the sovereign Messiah at the beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 1, when God declared, let there be light, and divided the light from the darkness, the day from the night, man is made now in the sixth day, man is made in the image of God from the dust of the earth, and life is given to him by the Spirit of God. Notice chapter 2, verse 7. And the Lord God, Yahweh, Elohim formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. 
Such was the creation of the first Adam. Mankind, however, is not created without purpose. Adam was not just created as a trophy for God to look upon and say, look at what the wonderful thing that I have done. Rather, God created man with a purpose. So mankind was not created without purpose. He was created with a purpose. Both male and female was created by the sovereign work of the Creator with meaning and purpose. And it is only the Creator, God, the definer of all reality that can dictate what that meaning and purpose is. Mankind cannot dictate what your purpose is or what mankind's purpose is. Only God can. And it is only that Creator that can do that. All other attempts to define man's reason for existing ends in futility. The meaning of life, as so many people try to figure out, what is the meaning of life? Why am I here? The meaning of life is clearly set forth by the Creator in the first chapter of the book of beginnings, Genesis chapter 1. Henry Morris explains it this way. He says, The book of Genesis gives vital information concerning the origin of all things and therefore the meaning of all things, which would otherwise be forever inaccessible to man. In other words, from the very beginning, God tells the human race why they are alive, why they are created, why you are created. This segment of Genesis chapter 1 deals with man's meaning and purpose. That's why it's called the book of beginnings. Because it launches us on the right foot. It gives us our marching orders. Now after creating the heaven and earth and all that therein is, God creates mankind. And he defines him as a divine image bearer with meaning and a distinct purpose that will define his whole existence. In Genesis 1, 26-8, God is setting forth a commandment for mankind to understand and follow as it concerns his life, meaning, and purpose. Notice what he says. God says this, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So, God makes man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female creates he them. And then God blesses them. After he gives them their definition, he gives them their meaning, he gives them their purpose, he blesses them, and he says, go and be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. That was the commission to mankind. Note first, mankind is created in the image and likeness of God by the direct instigation and intervention by God the Holy Spirit. Notice, and God said, let us, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, let us, the triune God here anticipated, making man in our image after our likeness. And as God has a purpose... So does man, created in his image, created in his likeness, have a purpose. In the same way as the Spirit of God brooded upon the face of the waters, he now, in a more intimate, direct, and active display of power, breathes life into Adam, and Adam becomes a living soul. He breathes into his nostrils, it says in verse 7 of chapter 2, the breath of life, life itself, God himself, who is life himself, breathes life into dust, into nothing. And the man becomes a living soul. A man becomes a living soul with a purpose, a definition, a distinction from the animal kingdom. 
R.J. Rushdoony comments, he says, For man to be created in the image of God means that he is like God in every respect in which a creature can be like God. It means in the wider sense that man, like God, is a personality. But man is always different from God, although created in his image, in that he is a creature. Man, because he was created in the image of God, was created with the law of God in his being. For man to live in his original nature before the fall means to live in terms of God's law. Man, therefore, cannot escape. Man cannot escape knowing God. Because he is created in the image of God, man cannot escape. Man can argue that he doesn't believe in God, he he hates God or whatever. He can't escape that he's formed in the image of God. And he cannot escape knowing God. Cornelius Van Til explains what the effects are as a result to being created in the image and the likeness of God. He says, because man is created in the image of God, to not know God, man would have to destroy himself. But he cannot do this. There is no non-being into which man can slip into in order to escape God's face and voice. The mountains will not cover him. Hades will not hide him. Nothing can prevent his being confronted with him, with whom we have to do. Whenever he sees himself, he sees himself confronted with God. Secondly, as God anticipated the Lord Jesus Christ in the opening verses of Genesis chapter 1 with the words, in the beginning, as Christ is the beginning one, and let there be light as Christ is the light of the world, so does he further anticipate the Lord Jesus Christ by the anticipation of Adam. From the very beginning, God is already setting up the first Adam as a shadow of the coming last Adam so as to explain the role and connection between Adam and Christ as well as the role and connection between mankind and the restorer of mankind. It is no coincidence that God calls Adam, Adam, and Christ the last Adam, or the second Adam, or the final Adam. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And although Adam is created in the image and likeness of God, he is not the express image of God. There's a distinction here. The express image of God... The glory of God's express glory and image in Christ is reserved for one alone, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone. The Reverend Moorcraft comments, he says, The true nature of the image of God cannot be understood apart from the restoration of that image in Jesus Christ. Even Adam and Eve, in their unfallen condition, did not reveal the image of God as perfectly and clearly as Christ, because God cannot be known except in Christ which is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, the image of the invisible God, end quote. The Reverend Hesslink, quoting from Calvin, adds this. He says, The true image is more clearly seen in Christ than in Adam, even in his pristine state before the fall. Believers as well are only in the process of having that original image restored, which ultimately will be not only a restoration, but also an enhancement of that original image. For whatever excellence was engraved upon Adam, it was derived from the fact that he approached the glory of his creator through the only begotten Son. Even then, in the very beginning, Christ was the image of God. Thirdly, after creating Adam, God immediately 
details the purpose of mankind. He creates Adam and he relates him to the world and what Adam is to do in the world. Notice what he says. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Notice, he had to add over all the earth in in case he forgot to add everything else, in case mankind thought that maybe there are some things outside of that dominion mandate. Over everything. Dr. Ken Gentry comments, he says, God created the world for a purpose. His creational intent in bringing the world into being was for the manifestation of His own glory. And this is why the evolutionists want to believe in evolution because it neuters the purpose for creation because the purpose of creation was to glorify God and they want nothing to do with the glorification of God. Gentry continues, he says, one vital aspect of man being created in the image of God is that of man's acting as ruler over the earth and under God. This is evident in the close connection regarding man's creation in the image of God and the divine command to exercise rule over the creation order. Because man is in the image of God, he has the capacity and the responsibility for dominion. End quote. The commission of this dominion purpose however, was not commanded to be fulfilled by Adam, the man only. It was also a commanded commission for his wife, Eve. Both man and woman were given a dominion test. Different, distinct, but both given the commandment. So in verse 27 and 28, God interjects. So God created man in his image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply. And on and on and on. The commission was for them. And herein, in these two verses, lie the whole of man's purpose. Care for the creation that the Creator has given you. Subdue it. Make it rich by replenishing it. Take dominion over it because that is your stewardship, and be ye thankful. To be in the commission of God's dominion calling is the most wonderful thing that mankind could ever know. To be in the the employ of the Savior, the one who loves you, the one who has given himself for you. And it is in the fulfillment of this Genesis mandate this dominion mandate, this cultural mandate that God is glorified. God is therefore glorified by man's obedience and in regard to this cultivation of the societal structure. Man's relationship to the world is a creation fact. As God relates to the world, which he created, so too we must relate to the world, the world that God created according to the purpose for which God created the world. Man cannot, if he is to fulfill his God-given duty, separate from the world around him. We are in the world, but not of the world. And we can never be separated from the world around us, to be involved in the world around us. Mankind was never created to live in a monastery. Mankind was never created to be separated from the affairs of men and nations. Mankind was never created to be pietistic or an ascetic, to go out into the desert and contemplate himself. That was not the commission that God gave man. God did not say, 
I have created man in my image. In the likeness have I created man and woman to contemplate my glory. No, that's part of it. That is not the commission. That's not the purpose. That is not what gives man purpose and it is not what ultimately glorifies God. Man was created to live in and take dominion of the world around him for the glory of God. In other words, no retreat, no hiding out in the pew, no pew warmers, no second stringers. Everybody's first string. Everybody's on the front lines of the battle. If you are a child of God. That's where you want to be. Now, moms, front line of your battle, your children, your family. That will change in time. But wherever God has placed you, you are on the front lines. And so in order to give mankind a historical example of his meaning and purpose, God places Adam in the garden to become a fruitful gardener. The word cultivation is part of the word where we get the word culture. The culture. We are to cultivate the culture. And this meant that Adam was to cultivate the garden in a very specific way by subduing it in order to replenish the earth and with the assistance of his wife. Notice, fathers, husbands, you are to lead. You are to bear the yoke now, ministering to your wives, but with the assistance of your wives. You're not an island. You work with your wife. In fact, without your wives, and I know this for myself, without the input of the female, we would be beasts. Brute beasts. So with the assistance of his wife, Adam was to take dominion over the plant life and every animal that God created. And this dominion and subduing is called the dominion mandate or the cultural mandate. Moorcraft again observes, he says, God placed Adam in his garden to cultivate it and keep it. The garden needed tending and cultivating and as a part of the perfection of creation was the privilege and necessity of work on man's part. The privilege of work. The privilege to serve in God's kingdom. He continues, Adam was called to be an obedient gardener. That is, a manager of creation to the glory of the owner of the creation. Earth and all of its resources became man's stewardship to use and develop in terms of the revealed will of the creator of the universe. So in the beginning, God creates the world within the confines of time. Because beginning is a time reference. And he gives to man time within where he would then steward God's created order. And each of us have 24 hours in a day. It's somewhere along the lines of 8,600 seconds. And we are to steward it. You can't save it up. You have to spend it. That's called stewardship. So God is giving man time to fulfill his purpose on earth in time and in history. And in these two verses, all of the resources of the earth were placed at the disposal of Adam. He's given everything. Here it is. It's all yours except that one tree. It's all yours. Here's your your weapons, your resources. In these verses, all of the resources of the earth were placed at the disposal of Adam in order to use them for one purpose, cultivate the garden. Cultivate the kingdom of God. That's your purpose. 
the garden and all that was in the world was not to take dominion over Adam, but rather he was to subdue and take dominion over it. And that's something we need to think about. Does the world that we are in, is that world, your world, taking dominion over you? Social media, television, whatever. Is the world taking dominion over us or are we taking dominion over it? So Adam was told to take dominion, not to have dominion taken him, but him taking dominion. And there's a hardcore fact connected to the reality that mankind is created in the image of God. And that is mankind is naturally dominion oriented. Mankind, with every fiber of his being, seeks dominion. They seek to, to be in control. Dominion passion is a natural outworking of man's being created in God's image. Even though that image is marred by the fall and now is sinfully self-centered, self-absorbed and antagonistic against the Lord and against his Christ, he still seeks dominion and the subjugation of the world around him. That's mankind for you. No matter what side of redemption he's on, the difference is that natural man seeks dominion for himself and not for God. Natural man seeks dominion for all sorts of reasons all of which revolves around his lusts, whatever they may be, money, position, fame, power, whatever satisfies the particular lust of his fallen nature. That, that's, what, that's what he wants. He wants to take dominion so he can satisfy some lust, some lust of his fallen nature. Natural man seeks to control the world around him for his own sake and often, and often at the expense of others. See, the Christian wants to take dominion for the glorification of Christ and the salvation of others. And this is true always for the unsaved. They sadly, even for many who claim to be children of God, are taking dominion for their own lusts. Only the redeemed, the true redeemed, not the professors of religion, not the religionists, not the pew warmers, but only the redeemed, those who have had the Spirit of God breathed into them to give them life afresh, only the redeemed are able to harness and mortify old Adam's temptation for self-seeking dominion and transform it into a God-glorifying, Christocentric dominion purpose. And only then, by the effectual working of God's grace, they are able to faithfully to fulfill their life's purpose for the glory of God. And so the question that we must ask is this. Are we, as we examine ourselves, are we, seeking to take dominion for the kingdom and the glory of God or for our own glorification and profit. And if we answer for the glory of God, which I hope that everyone answers that, even if they're not sure, then the question is, to what extent are you willing to sacrifice yourself? Because again, we always we always serve at the margin. Whatever we can get away with, that's all we're going to do, and then we'll pull back. We always serve at the margin. So that we now have to ask, to what extent are you willing to sacrifice yourself for the glory of God? How far? How far are you willing to go to glorify God? It seems as if when the unprofitable servant of Matthew 25 hid his talents in the earth, not only did he not use the talent for the Lord's purpose, but hiding it in the earth seems to indicate that he used it for earthly things. If you're taking your talents and you're hiding them in the earth, you're expecting something to come back from the earth. Whenever a talent is hidden in the earth and not used for the kingdom, it's Use is earthly. The unjust steward had become unprofitable. Notice he was a steward of time, but he became unprofitable for the kingdom by abdicating his dominion mandate commandment for the glory of God. 
as far as you mothers are concerned, to what extent are you walking by the way with your children, meditating with them on the Word of God, comforting them in their sorrow, encouraging them with the salvation message of Christ? How often are you doing this? Well, it should be always. It's not between 12 and 3 in the afternoon, after you get off social media. It's according to Deuteronomy chapter 6. When you rise up, when you lie down, when you walk by the way, when you're doing this, when you're doing the other thing, it's always, it's a life's purpose. It's the hub of your life. So the unjust steward replaces God's dominion mandate with his own mandate. And as a result, God calls him an unprofitable servant. Notice that although he is called unprofitable, he is still referred to as God's servant because everyone is God's servant. I don't care who they are. Everyone, even the wicked reprobates, they all have to serve God one way or another, either in their reprobation or their salvation. In other words, God is calling him the servant because this man positioned himself as God's servant, but in reality, he was not. How many times do you hear wicked people, wicked people saying that, well, I'm a child of God, I'm created in the image of God, or I go to church, or I do this, and they're doing wicked things. They're unprofitable servants. This man was an unjust servant, and therefore, he was an illegitimate son of God. Now consider for a moment the references to a garden as a symbol of the church. The garden east of Eden, commonly called the Garden of Eden, was a glorious lush land with an abundance of natural resources, as we read here, fish and and animals and, and trees and all these wonderful things. And that was given to Adam. These natural resources were given to Adam to use for his cultivation to the glory of God. And in the same way that the church and all of the resources of Christ's blessings, just think about this, how many resources of Christ's blessings Not only the world around us, but the blessings of Christ. Do we, the church, have at our disposal? How many of these blessings are conferred to us? How many of these blessings are are we told that we can use? Everything, everything. We're told we can use all these blessings to advance the kingdom of God by cultivating the culture. That is how God gave Adam Eden. With all of the resources to cultivate them, to be used in the dominion mandate to subdue and take dominion. However, as a result of his rebellion, he's banished from the garden because he wanted that one thing that God said, don't touch, don't do it, just don't do it. How many times are we involved in the work of the ministry and then all of a sudden we we fall off the rails, we fall off the wagon and we, we go after that one thing that we know, we know God has said no. And willingly, we know. Adam knew. Eve knew. They even quoted it back to each other. They knew. You eat, you die. And then they questioned God. Well, I can get away with it. God didn't really say that. He didn't really mean that. He meant something else. So as a result of his rebellion, he's banished from the garden into a wilderness of thorns and thistles, much like the Israelites after the exodus from Egypt. And throughout the wilderness wanderings, Israel was looking for the land of promise. They were looking for a new Eden, a land flowing with milk and honey, both referencing to the gospel of the kingdom. Adam, likewise, after his banishment out of the garden into what was probably a howling wilderness, was to look for a land of promise which would replace the Garden of Eden. They were given the promise of Genesis 3. They believed, and now they were cast out, even though they believed. And now they were in a land of of horror, a land of wilderness, a land of sin. And since Adam and Eve were given the promise of the Savior, they were now 
out there looking for a new land, a new land to develop, a new area to develop as a garden because the first had been lost. They were looking for the promised land. But once the original Eden was destroyed, this new garden that they were looking for could not be established by mankind. Mankind was no longer able to establish the the promised land. Even the land of promise after the fall could not measure up to the new Eden by the work of men. The Hebrew writer comments on this. He says in Hebrews 11, verse 9 and 10, By faith Abraham sojourned in the land of promise as a, strange, as a stranger in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Not man. He was looking for something beyond a worldly dominion that man might create. Because all that man can create is what? The Tower of Babel. The place where Abraham was to settle was not in the wilderness, but in the city of God, which was a type of the restored Garden of Eden. So God established the first garden in Adam. And now because of the fall, he would have to establish the last garden, the new garden, the new Eden in the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the new garden could only be established by the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only he could deliver. Only he could make the crooked way straight. Only, only he could take upon himself the mantle, the position, the title of the last Adam, the perfect glory of God, the express glory of his image, and to restore what the first Adam destroyed. That's why there's such a connection between the Adams. Christ is established as the new man, not only the last Adam, but the new man in opposition to the old man, Adam. Now sometimes we talk about the old man in us. But we never can forget that we also have the new man in us. And that's what empowers us. We have the Spirit of God. We are in union with Christ. We have the new man. Notice what Paul says. He gives this new man title to Christ in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. And that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. That new man is Christ. Notice what Paul says to the Colossians. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man, Adam, who was trying to take dominion by his own works, with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is Christ, which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him that created him. David Chilton observes, he says, When God created Adam, he placed him into a land and gave him dominion over it. Land is basic to dominion. Therefore, salvation involves a restoration to land and property. That's why God says the meek shall inherit the earth. He was talking about the new heaven and the new earth. The task of dominion began in the Garden of Eden. But it was not supposed to end there. For man was ordered to have dominion over the whole earth. Adam and Eve and their children were to extend the blessing of paradise throughout the whole world. But when he rebelled, he lost the ability to have godly dominion because he lost fellowship with God. But now we have fellowship with God. Now we have been given the ability to take dominion for godly things and for the glory of God again. He ends with this. Christ came as the second Adam in order to undo the damage brought about by the first. The restorer of all things. And this is why Jesus quotes from Psalm 37 in the Beatitudes, declaring that the meek shall inherit the earth. So it was both an Old Testament reality, a promise, and a New Testament promise. This was a dominion declaration pointing back to Genesis 1 and reminding his regenerate army of their meaning and purpose. But before we go and take dominion 
outside of ourselves, let me say this very pointedly, we must be able to take dominion over our own lusts. The subduing of the earth was to be the new Eden. It would be the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness would dwell. Often the Lord Jesus Christ, through his prophet Solomon, would call the people of God a well-watered garden where the Spirit is cultivating us. He's cultivating our minds. He's cultivating our actions. But it's well-watered. And as God is the water of life, we need to water it by reading of the Word, by praying, so that we would be watered, not a parched place, so that we would be able to mortify sin, that we would be able to, to take dominion over our own lusts, not to have the old Adam rise up and become the tail, but the new man rise up that we would be the head once again. And this new heaven and new earth would begin in earnest at the incarnation, and that's why the incarnation is so important. It begins at the incarnation, it is established by the resurrection, it is empowered by Pentecost, and would be known then therefore as the kingdom of God. So when Jesus said, but if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. That kingdom of, of, of restored Eden, that restored Adamic kingdom. He was telling the people that the kingdom had come in him and by his incarnation and would be effectuated after his resurrection at Pentecost. So after John the Baptist is placed in prison, Jesus reiterates this fact in Mark chapter 1, 1 verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Not 2,000 years later, but it's right there. It's at the very doors and it will come in power at Pentecost. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Isaiah himself alluded to the coming of the kingdom, identifying it as the new heaven and the new earth where all things were to be made new. The kingdom of God, the new heaven and the new earth as it's called, came with Christ at his advent. Notice Isaiah 65, 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The new man, the new testament, new heaven, new earth, new wine. All things are made new. Only the new man, Jesus Christ, and his redeemed, those new creatures in Christ, could establish. Because they have been given the power and the ability to establish this new heaven and new earth, which is simply another name for the kingdom of God or even the new Garden of Eden. Peter understood the role of God's people in the culture's restoration and its reorientation Godward when he stated this in 2 Peter 3.13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, then what is Peter talking about? The Old Testament promises, according to these promises that were given to the Jews. We look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness as we are developing it. We're looking for this to becoming a reality in our time, in our history. Peter is saying that now that the kingdom has come, we are to work toward establishing a totally new world by the application of God's word to the culture in fidelity and obedience. I think the problem with the church today is they become too comfortable with the old world. I think the problem with the people of God today is they are tolerating what is wicked out there as if it belongs to the secularists or the devil. I think we have put God in a box. I think we have thought that maybe it is impossible to change the world, that everyone would then follow the righteousness of Christ. I think we think it's too hard. And so we either retreat or we become lackadaisical because we don't think people are going to hear. It doesn't matter if people are going to hear. We're going to speak. And we're going to hope. 
because God says that he will be victorious. Now, drawing from the incarnation declaration of his gospel, where John says, John 1.14, and the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us, he now shares the result of that incarnation in Revelation chapter 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, or to put it another way, the Garden of Eden, if you will, coming down from God out of heaven. The reason why it's called the New Jerusalem is because Jerusalem means the city of peace. We now have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, John, saw the holy city. What's the holy city? We have the holy city. We're the city set on a hill. Jesus told the disciples, you are the city that's set on a hill. I, John, saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven prepared as a bride. Who's the bride? We're the bride. Prepared for her husband. Adorned for her husband. Prepared for the work of ministry. Verse 3, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Who do you think that was? It's the declarer himself, the Lord God. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Well, that's what John was saying. He's just repeating himself. The tabernacle of God was made flesh. It's dwelling with us. And then in Revelation, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Christ's tabernacle is with us now. And notice what he says after this. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death. No more death! Do we die? Yes. But there's no more death. Neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Right, for these things, for these words, these words are true and faithful. Now as the last Adam, Jesus' incarnation inaugurated the new heaven and the new earth, where he would reestablish the Garden of Eden in time and in history by the establishment of the kingdom of God. So when Adam was created, he was ordained as the covenant federal head over God's created order. He would remain the head provided he remained obedient to God's commission. Moses tells us this in Deuteronomy chapter 28. If you disobey, you become the tail. But when you obey, you become the head. So he becomes the tail because he disobeys. So Adam fails to fulfill his calling unto God. He comes under God's curse. He becomes the tail, forfeiting his position in the garden. Calvin says this, commenting on Deuteronomy 28. This means that who... Those who endeavor to serve God shall be set above and not beneath. This is, as it were, the height of all prosperity. Our Lord has made a promise to all the faithful that if they walk in His obedience, they should not be oppressed by the tyranny of men, but shall be sustained in liberty. So after Adam's fall, his position as the keeper and gardener of Eden, remember, he was the cultivator, that position became vacant. And he became oppressed by the tyranny of sin and subjected to the tyranny of men. And throughout the entire Old Testament, God raised up prophets to declare the coming of the Messiah who would restore God's people, referring to them as that well-worded garden, the garden of the Lord, and its cultural commission as the resurrected garden by establishing the kingdom of heaven on earth in time and in history. And this is why the Lord Jesus Christ reveals himself to Mary as the gardener. Why not the carpenter? Why not the mason? Why not anything else? Why the gardener? 
He reveals himself to Mary as the gardener after his victorious resurrection so to show himself as the last Adam, the faithful gardener, the victorious gardener, unlike the first Adam, who was the rebellious gardener, who would be victorious and who would be able to subdue and take dominion. Notice John 20. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. As the faithful gardener, Jesus restores the Genesis commission of Genesis chapter 1 in order to accomplish a universal cultural restoration unto God, a restoration of all things made new through His church. We are the body of Christ dispatched to the earth. Under Christ, as, as a result of the kingdom's coming, all things are now being subjected unto Him for His total dominion cultivation. And we are His army. Paul puts it this way. 1 Corinthians 15, For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. For he hath put all things under his feet. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, notice, subjection. He's subduing all things. And when that finally happens, at the end of the world, when that finally happens, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, God the Father, that put all things unto him, so that God may be all in all. That's the culmination of the age. In this verse, Paul gives both the eschatological hope and the eschatological guarantee of dominion victory, which was solidified by the incarnate Christ. Paul is answering the question, is everything we do or build for the kingdom of God doomed to destruction in time and history? He's answering the question in 1 Corinthians 15, and the answer is no, absolutely not. Vehemently, resounding, no, no. The kingdom of God has come and it is coming in a greater and more perfect fashion as time continues provided. Provided the church faithfully stewards the culture by engaging it for the glory of God. Reverend Dr. Klaus Schindler explains it this way. In his observation, he says, God gives back to the new humanity the rich powers of his poured out spirit, the powers of sanctification, of ecclesiastical conquest, of world cultivation, of cultural activity. I can't even wrap my head around that phrase. God gives back to the new humanity. That's you. That's the elect. That's the people of God throughout the world. God gives back to the new humanity the rich powers of His poured out spirit. The rich powers of His poured out spirit. God's pouring Himself out. The powers of sanctification so you don't have to sin anymore of ecclesiastical conquest, the church, victorious and triumphant. Where, when have you heard that before? Of world cultivation. We can't even take over our community. We can't even have our own households in order. Of world cultivation, of cultural activity. Amid a crooked and perverse generation, he again erects specimens of the pure human race, they are not yet perfect, but in principle they do exist. They exist from the very moment Adam bowed in faith under the first gospel promise of Genesis 3.16. And they are coming and increasing and becoming the great multitude of those sanctified by God in Christ. Their army is increasing and shall be completely numbered by the last day. Do you see that? Do we see that in the church today? No. We have theater. We have anecdotal sermons, 20 minutes long, because the roast is in the oven, we've got to get back home. 
where football scores instead of gospel preaching? Is the army of God increasing? Men cannot escape culture in the same way that he can escape his duty to take dominion. The difference is, once again, between man's humanistic concept of culture and God's definition of culture, is that man's idea of culture is the cultivation of the world for the benefit of man and not for the benefit of God. Yet God is the God of culture. And we are the people of God. God is the originator and definer of culture. And therefore God's conception and goal of culture is the cultivation of the world for His own glory. Francis Nigel Lee explains the situation in the garden and its relationship to culture. He says, If and when Adam and his descendants had performed all these manifold tasks of cultivation faithfully and thereby kept God's moral law, they would thereby ultimately have earned unloosable blessedness. In other words, everlasting life as a permanent reward. However, if Adam and his descendants tried to evade all cultural efforts by taking a shortcut to gain that knowledge by attempting to steal the utmost knowledge by eating of the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which in fact they did, they would lose even that measure of life or blessedness with which they were created and suffered agony forever. End quote. Adam looked for the silver bullet to his cultural commandment of dominion. In other words, he wanted to serve at the margin. He wanted the short way out. Sinner's prayer. You're better off doing 20 push-ups. I'll give you more out of it. They wanted a shortcut. Two-minute devotions. And then I'm off to the world. Studying the Bible? I'll wait for the pastor to expound the scriptures on Sunday. Shortcut. No longer willing to work no longer desiring to learn, mature, and become proficient in his dominion obligation so that he could eat from the tree of life, Adam instead sought immediate satisfaction to his dominion responsibility by taking from the tree of knowledge. He looked for the shortcut. My friends, there's no shortcut. No shortcut in the education of your child, no shortcut in your prayer life, no shortcut in your study of scripture, no shortcut in the Christian community. No shortcuts, lest ye be like Adam. In a veiled implication to Adam's sin, Paul reminds the Thessalonians that he that will not work, neither should he eat. Was he talking about working? I've got to work more at the job. Eating of the bread of life is what is in view. Adam was to work. And in the process of time, and only after continued fidelity and diligence, he would reap the blessing of the tree of life. And since the first Adam refused to work to cultivate the garden, the last Adam had to do the work of Adam He had to do the work that Adam failed to accomplish in cultivating the world by sowing the seeds of the kingdom by the sweat of his brow. Remember, after the curse, now you've got to cultivate by the sweat of your brow. But now Christ has to cultivate by the sweat of his brow. The only difference is Christ's sweat was not natural perspiration of labor. His sweat was blood. And what is more astonishing is that Christ's sweat of blood had to be shed in the garden. In the Garden of Gethsemane, bringing us back to where it all began, in the Garden of Eden, reminding us of that garden where Adam failed in his work of cultivation. And so Christ returns to the garden where it all began in order to begin afresh to repair the breach caused by Adam's rebellion by watering the garden with his own redemptive blood. And that's what happened. Great drops of blood fell from his face, fell from his brow, onto the ground to water it, to cleanse that earth, to give that the hope of redemption as well. Because not only will man be redeemed, but the entire created order is going to be redeemed according to the Apostle Paul. But the blood of Christ, by the sweat of his brow. And as a result of the new birth, 
We are called to work in the cultivation of the world Godward so as to eat from the tree of life which is found only in and by the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if we do not work, we shall not eat. Man's cultural obligation will endure until the very end of history as long as man is upon the earth. But as Reverend Lee fully understood, his task can only be fulfilled by God's elect, his new creation in Christ Jesus, because true cultivation can only be realized by the work of Christ in God's elect when the dominion mandate is executed for the glory of God. Notice what he says. Adam and his culture must not die, but live. And so immediately after the fall, God intervened to save man and his culture. The word of God, the Son himself, guaranteed that he personally would ultimately come down to earth and fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15, where he declared, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Adam and Eve then, both believing in the coming Savior, were saved and lived. And their dying culture revived with them through the Lord Christ. End quote. So the question is not should we be involved in culture, but rather how shall we be involved with the culture? Now in summation, permit me to share with you the words of my dear friend and colleague, Pastor Ron Kranz. He says this, There are a multitude of opportunities with which we can shatter the darkness of the world with the light of Christ. Calling civil magistrates to repent of governmental abuses, standing publicly for our pre-born neighbors, distributing gospel literature, participating in campus apologetics, sign ministries, setting up community discipleship groups, and a bunch of other things come to mind. But if your pastor cannot equip you to do more than to help clean and maintain the church grounds, watch children in the nursery, teach Sunday school classes, and do other little chores and errands that do little more than support the infrastructure of a building and a program that we call a church, then your pastor is failing. If your leaders cannot lead you to the front line of bringing Christ into conflict with the broken world, it is because they themselves want nothing to do with that fight. Our unwillingness to shoulder our share of the work is the very dynamic that allows the world to remain in its passive rest of state lying comfortably under the sway of the wicked one. End quote. May God mightily convict us of our redemptive purpose so that we no longer are satisfied with remaining stagnant in the work of gospel kingdom advancement. And this we shall do, God helping us, as we contemplate the incarnation of the victorious Son of God unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.